0: Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. In this episode, our storyteller shares what goes into his extensive pre-purchase aircraft inspections and some of the stories of what he found on the job.
1: A company called Aviation Consulting Services Incorporated, but I'm more of an aircraft mechanic and flight test pilot than a consultant. So let me explain to you what I do and how I got there. I think how I really got into this occupation is when I was about 12 years old in 1954. Back then, you know, TV sets are really small and black and white, and it wasn't much fun watching them. So I used to go to the movie at least once a week, and I love boats. I used to love those pirate ships and everything. But one time I went, and John Wayne was in a picture. It was called The High and the Mighty in 1954, and it was about a four-engine piston airliner flying across the Pacific Ocean from Honolulu to San Francisco, and the engines failed. One or two of the engines, I can't remember and all the passengers were panicking and it was kind of a life story of all the passengers and anyway, what really impressed me first of all I felt so bad for all those people in the airplane. I said, Man, I gotta prevent this in the future. You know, this is terrible. You know, they're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and the engines are failing on this airplane. <laughs> but what really impressed me is It came in on either one or two engines. I don't remember. So anyway, it comes in for landing. And here the the guy in the control tower, he's the mechanic, and he was a pilot. And he knows everything about airplanes. And he was telling these shook-up pilots exactly what to do to keep that engine running. And they landed safely. And I kind of said to myself, man, you know, I don't know about being a pilot, but I'd like to be a guy like that who saves an airplane on the ground. (laughs) I just you know, I just started off trying to be a private pilot, and uh, I caught the bug. I worked as a flight instructor on the weekends for Flight Safety, which is a big company now. Back then, they weren't that big. And I saved up a lot of money, and I said, well, I'm going to quit doing this, and I'm going to move to North Carolina and go full-time in aviation. So I've been living in North Carolina now for over 40 years, and I went to work for a little FBO, fixed-base operator. And um, taught people how to fly, and sold some airplanes for the owner of the f b o and did all this charter flying, so it wound up that I was making a lot of money for this little f b o in North Carolina. I was selling airplanes and teaching people how to fly them, and taking the magneto off in the middle of the night and doing maintenance on the airplanes and so people were all wanted to buy airplanes off me because part of the deal was I keep them flying and give them good service and get them their ratings. So anyway, everything was going good, except I was making way too much money. I was making more than their jet pilots that they had flying some really wealthy people we have in Pinehurst, North Carolina area down here. So they decided to cut my salary, and um, I told them I'm going to go self-employed. So I continued in the pre-purchase inspection, and I started off with little single-engine airplanes, and I wound up uh, buying some of my customers' uh, twin-engine airplanes, like Cessna 421s. And I was kind of a fleet operator for a while there with a whole bunch of airplanes. I would be checking out pilots and hiring my customers' pilots, and I did that for a few years until I decided to go full-time into flight testing airplanes. Uh, I got my uh, rating in a Citation jet, and uh, and that's what I do. I check out all size airplanes. I've checked out little Piper J3 Cubs, and I've checked out a Boeing 727. <laughs> and uh, I traveled around the world to do this, uh, I guess, 10 years ago. Most of my business was in Europe and um people would hire me to get on an airline and as soon as i got there it was the next day and i was still awake and i had to start working right away and we go up for a flight test and the flight test uh for a corporate jet well you know there's all kinds of special insurance requirements and so usually i have a crew a contract crew that flies the airplane and i check all the systems out and check the airplane out have a video camera going uh, scan all the instruments on takeoff and during the flight. And, and of course, the main thing is to find things wrong with the airplane. It all started off with of the ALPA in 1999. They wrote an article about me, what I do. It was called uh, Buyer's Dream, Seller's Nightmare. And it was like a three-page article. And it was about doing a pre-buy on a Gulfstream and on a Aerostar, a piston airplane. And because of that article, It kept me busy for five full years. (laughs) Uh, Matter of fact, I was turning away customers. Well, I have a story. I had a a Weir 31 about uh, the airplane was only three years old, and this was 1996. And we took off out of Sugar Land, Texas at sea level. It was the middle of summertime, very hot. So I sat down with the crew, and uh, we went over all the operating statistics of the airplane, and we decided what power settings we're going to use and, and how fast we were going to climb and what altitude we're going to go to and what speeds we expected to hit when we got to altitude. We went over over all the numbers. So we took off in late in the afternoon, and we climbed right to 51,000 feet. Now, we're 31 is, is a real performer. Now, I didn't realize it, but we were climbing so fast, I figured it was going to take about 20 minutes to get up there we get up there in 18 minutes, to 51,000 feet, and they set the power, and that's what's important to me, that the temperatures of the engines are right, the fuel flow is right, and the speed of the airplane corresponds with how much fuel and what the temperatures are of the engines. Then I know at 51,000 feet where it's really ice cold and we're putting the most strain on those two engines, then we know if it meets the numbers, the maximum cruise speed, Then we know we have healthy engines. And the engines cost over a half million dollars each, so it's important that they're working right. And while the airplane was accelerating, I went to the back of the airplane to listen around the cabin for any whistling sounds, which might indicate a pressure leak. Because one time I found a jet that there was a small crack in the pressure bulkhead, and I picked it up, uh, not only with my ears in the back of the cabin, but also my stereo camcorder. I picked it up. So I come forward, and just as I got to the front of the cockpit, the airplane had what you call a high-speed Mach-Tuck.
0: This is a very serious situation. The Learjet 31 mentioned in the story is not a supersonic-capable airplane, and is aerodynamically designed to fly in subsonic speeds. So as the speed of their jet approaches Mach 1, the transonic airflow passing over the wing begins to disrupt how the airplane flies. At the point of the tuck, the aerodynamics of the plane are no longer effective and the jet immediately noses down as the control surfaces now have no effect. The plane is now partially perpendicular to the oncoming air and there is a high chance that they could lose a wing.
1: And that's what happened to us. So the airplane was going straight out. <laughs> the crew was very competent and I said to them, dropped the landing gear because the airspeed indicator was spinning around. <laughs> it was about ready to go past red line, way past red line. So they reached over to drop the landing gear, which is a no-no, but I didn't want a wing to come off. But fortunately, the plane recovered because they had the throttles all the way back at this time. So we lost 10,000 feet in the heartbeat. But fortunately, we didn't break an altitude restriction because I'm flight testing an airplane. I usually ask for altitudes above us and ten or, or 15,000 feet below us. So it gives us a free reign of the airspace to do maneuvers. And so we only went down to 40,000 feet. We <laughs> was still legal without getting special permission to do that from mere traffic control. So we were all kind of shook up. We said, what happened to this airplane? Why didn't it do that? It's not supposed to go that fast. And uh, we got on the ground, reviewed my videotape, and the temperatures were right and the fuel flow was right. But the airplane oversped much faster than it was supposed to go. So I called up the flight test pilots where they built the plane. Well, not where they built it, but where they certified the plane in Tucson, Arizona. And I told them what happened to us. And they said, oh, that's impossible. The airplane can't go that fast. I said, well, it didn't. We tucked under at 51,000 feet. (laughs) He says, oh, my goodness. uh, So he said, we never heard of one tucking under before. I said, well, wait a minute. I said, I'm looking at your flight manual here, and I don't have a revision in here for airplanes with thrust reverses. He says, no, you don't need one. They all have thrust reverses. I said, whoa, wait a minute. This airplane doesn't have thrust reverses on the back of the engine.
0: And not only does this mean that the jet is 150 pounds lighter, but the thrust coming out of the engine is now unobstructed and way more efficient than expected.
1: They needed to write a new flight manual for these airplanes that they made without thrust reverses. Because the plane was never tested that way. So we'll never know because they're never going to test an airplane that way. <laughs> but it was it was their fault. You know, they 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 were selling an airplane to a foreigner. And I think they made a few more like that, mostly foreign airplanes. And, you know, the foreigner said, uh, I'd rather use my brakes. I don't want thrust reverses. So whatever the customer says is good, okay? <laughs> so that's what they give them. Now, when it comes back to the United States, it's supposed to get certified by a, a DAR, designated airframe representative of the FAA. And he's supposed to make sure that that plane conforms with the type certificate. In other words, the blueprints that gave the FAA, well, these planes didn't conform with the type certificate. <laughs> and when they, they miss that when it come back. So that's another thing I do when they import an airplane. If one of my customers are doing that, uh, I check it out and make sure it's, it's completely airworthy because the DARs it's like a four-hour job for them, and they can't find out what I could find out. Not very many people do it the way I do it. Uh, people think that a pre-purchase inspection is a maintenance item. You know, you know, you go into a big shop, and you spend a lot of money, and they check the plane out and say you're good to go. <laughs> they never operated the airplane. <laughs> I very seldom find a completely airworthy airplane. Now, to be airworthy, it has to conform with the type certificate and be in current inspection status and have no airworthiness directives against it, okay? So what I find is, especially on little piston airplanes, that most of them I find an airworthiness directive against them. That may be 20 or 30 years old that was overlooked. And um, it needs to conform with the type certificate. In other words, if there's not a a manual telling you how to fix a worn-out part. Like your door hinge on your little Cessnas, if the door hinge has a lot of play in it, there is no specifications from Cessna to say it's allowed a little play, so the whole airplane becomes unworthy until you change the door hinge where there's no play. <laughs> now the bigger jets, they, they you know they say well you're allowed so much play in this and that and you know and, and then they have life limited parts on jets, and so I go through the paperwork which takes a whole day. I look at every piece of paper. I get a NetJets airplane and he threw me five CDs and it was 14,000 records on it. <laughs> I had to look at every one of them <laughs> and I found it's, it's not unusual. I come up with 25 squawks on a flight test and once I get into the plane, some airplanes... I come up with hundreds of squawks on. Okay, a squawk is a fancy name in aviation for a defect. (laughs) It it should be called a defect, but it's not. (laughs) And I could usually tell the very first day to the buyer. I'll say, look, before I go on the job, we're going to research this airplane, and you'll just pay me a half a day's salary to do that. And I'm going to get the FAA records on it and make sure that it hasn't had any 337 damage reforms filed on it. And I'm going to know the alterations that were put on the airplane. And I'm going to try to read the logbooks. And in a big jet airplane, it's computerized you know, records I look through. And then I'm going to match all that stuff up with what I see in writing when I get to the logbooks. But before, we go, before I go to the airplane, I, I pretty much know what I got and what I got to deal with. I push the airplane on the ramp. When it gets on the ramp, we start one engine. And then I go outside the airplane and I tested the ice system and the anti-ice system. I make sure those rubber boots are inflating with one engine running. And I have to get on a big ladder, get over up the top of the vertical stabilizer and run my hand over the boot, make sure there's no air leaks. And um, after that, when we land, we shut down that engine and, and I test it with the other engine running, but I have to keep away from the side the engine is running. So I test both sides of the airplane. And then we we make a taxi by making a lot of turns, make sure all the gyroscopes are are not processing, that they're all spinning the right way, and all the instruments are reading right, and everything agrees, the pilot and co-pilot side. So you know, the flight test usually only takes an hour, but it takes a half a day to get ready for it because I need to check out a lot of stuff before we go out there. I'm in a different make and model every week. (laughs) So I got to get up to speed on the equipment on that airplane because I have to test everything I could safely test in flight, which is almost everything. I got to flip every switch. And if I feel that we have some unusual vibration coming from one of the engines, I have to shut down an engine and see where the vibration is coming from, left or right. (laughs) And, you know, it depends on the flight crew if they want to cooperate with me. If they don't want to cooperate with me, it gets expensive. Then we got to go into the engine doing a boroscope inspection. There's all kinds of things. So anyway, most flight crews are very cooperative because they never did this before. You know, they do a normal takeoff. They don't do a maximum takeoff trying to make the numbers. you got to rotate, and you know, it's 1950 foot. You're supposed to rotate. <laughs> okay. you got to get to V1 by the time you're... 3,000 foot down the runway. you, you got to get to 10,000 feet in um, nine minutes. <laughs> you, know, you got to go to maximum operating altitude. What? never been up there, 51,000 feet? <laughs> I said, yeah, the reason why is because it's extremely cold up there, and the cold weather affects the skin of the airplane, and we have maximum differential pressure. And in the case of this weird jet, it was nine, over 9 PSI square inch (laughs) so you got an automobile pushing against those little windows (laughs) and when it's cold and maximum differential pressure i could check the integrity of the airplane even like that cracked rear bulkhead they would have never found it at a lower altitude because so cold up there it, it made the crack expand a little bit, you know, get a little bigger crack because the metal shrunk, you know, whatever. I try not to be pilot-in-command because the owner of the airplane, uh, he's insured on it if anything happens. And um, but if I have to be pilot-in-command, I'll I'll fly it. But my job isn't really to fly the airplane, it's to test the airplane. So I have to have eyes every place. And I don't want to waste my time talking to air traffic control. Matter of fact, um, uh, I usually try to make a flight plan to get someplace where we don't have to talk to air traffic control because I want the plane to climb the altitude as quick as possible. And when we come back, we have to make a coupled instrument approach because what are we paying for? We're paying for the autopilot. We're not paying for the guy flying the airplane. So I don't care how good the guy flies the airplane. I, I'm worried about how good the autopilot flies the airplane. So we intercept the ILS 20 miles out maybe, gives us plenty of time to test it out. We make sure all the proper notifications are flashing and the audios are coming up. Then when the plane gets back into the hangar, now the flight test went well, and maybe I had 20 squawks, and maybe one squawk was worth $50,000 on a big airplane. So right away, I get buyer and seller together to say, who's going to pay for this $50,000 score? Then if the seller says, I'll pay for it, no problem. If the buyer says, I'm not buying that plane unless he pays for it, I might just be going home that same day. (laughs) He might not want to buy this airplane. And so I found out something in the very first day that it would take mechanics about three days to find out. Then the other thing is, it gets back in the hangar. I top the fuel tanks off and look for leaks. Because sitting in a hangar overnight, if a fuel cell or any of the ceiling is bad on a wet wing, it'll leak overnight with all that pressure of all that fuel in the tanks. And then I, overnight in the motel room, I'm the busy guy going through log books and records and everything. And then when I get back out to the airplane, now I know where repairs have been made. And um, I can check those repairs and make sure they've held up over the years. So I'll start taking off inspection plates and I look for corrosion one of the main places to look for corrosion if if it's a big airplane that has a flushing potty they put a blue chemical in the potty it cuts the smell <laughs> the only problem is very corrosive and if the chemical got spilt onto the airframe i saw air, i did an airplane one time it caused 200,000 dollars worth of damage from the potty spill <laughs> just because it corroded you know some structure in the airplane so we we couldn't buy the airplane. (laughs) Actually, they had to scrap the airplane, even though it was a pretty nice airplane, but they didn't want to spend that much money to fix it. Uh, The important thing, too, about corrosion, that's hard to find corrosion, but the important thing is to see where the airplane has been owned. If it's owned any place in Florida, it's bad news. The East Coast here, about 50 miles inland from the Atlantic Ocean, and the West Coast, uh, probably about Fifteen or twenty miles in from the Pacific Ocean, if it's been based there for many years, I'm going to do a different kind of corrosion inspection. <laughs> I'm really going to get into things because I'm suspecting to find corrosion, and that could make the plane worthless. Uh, it costs so much to to fix some of this stuff you know the these formers and stringers and and then I look around the entrance doors and the windows. Because those are places where when the plane is sitting in the rain, when it's flying, it's usually not a problem because the plane is pressurized. And if there's any leaks, it's blowing out into the atmosphere. It's not sucking in. Uh, But unpressurized airplanes, especially sitting in the rain, uh, they could be leaking some water. And the water drips down in the fuselage where there's a lot of dust and all kinds of junk down there from over the years. And that turns the water into acid. And that starts etching away on the aluminum. And if it's a, a modern airplane, it's made of um, plastic. <laughs> no, not really plastic, as you know, but composite materials. So I have a little sounding hammer. Matter of fact, I used to uh, do surveys on yachts. <laughs> I used a <to> big hammer. <laughs> well, here I got a little hammer for airplanes. And I tap out the composite materials, and if I hear a hollow sound, I know it's delaminating. And for instance, on a Citation jet, one of the flaps on the left and right side, there's two of them, just one of them is worth about $40,000. And if it's delaminating, it's a very expensive fix. And if it can be fixed, it might need to buy a new flap. So there, there is so much to this that people don't understand. You know, it's not just a maintenance test, it should start off as an op- operational test. And a log, and actually, you should start over with a record review. But being that if an engine's not running right, we probably can't buy the airplane. So I start over with an operational test at high altitude. And then then I get into the actual log books and make sure that what was sent to me in my home study, you know, my before I went to the plane, make sure that agrees with the entries in the log books and uh kind of shake hands with the airplane you know i I pull the wings up and down in a static condition one time i heard something thumping and i took off an inspection plate it was there's uh, eight bolts that hold the wing on (laughs) i took off an inspection plate and the head of one of the bolts fell out of the ground so you know it's those kind of things happen people never check them you know you don't see a mechanic going around and shaking the Vertical and horizontal stabilizers, lifting for unusual noises, because it's not on the checklist anyplace. But I know from experience, these old airplanes, they do wear out. And a lot of times you'll hear unusual noises. And I found a Beach Baron that was made wrong at the factory. And fortunately, I found it 20 years later because there was so much wear on the horizontal stabilizer attaching points because they didn't put a shim in there that it could have failed any time. Um, There was a big company in Portland, Oregon, and the plane checked out real good on the flight test. It was only 10 squawks, and it was checking out real good on the ground. And all of a sudden, the record said that all the turbine components were changed at overhaul time, which was only 2,000 hours ago. So it had another 1,600 hours before they had to overhaul the engine. And that's what the buyer was counting on. And then all of a sudden, I noticed a document for one part was missing, and it said in the computer report, and it said in the logbook sign-off that it had zero-time components. But yet I didn't have the birth certificate for one of the turbine wheels, and it was going to expire in 400 hours from now. And in order to get to it, you have to take the whole engine apart. <laughs> We're talking a couple hundred thousand dollars here, $40,000 for the turbine wheel. So I called up Pratt & Whitney. It was a JT-15 uh, jet engine. And they went through their records, and they said... Well, we did a field overhaul, and the components still had time on it, so they told us to leave it in there. (laughs) But, I mean, the plane's not airworthy if you have a life-limited part and it's expired. That's it. You're grounded. I mean, the pilot doesn't know. What is he supposed to know, everything I know about an airplane before he takes off on his (laughs) pre-flight? You know, so... That's why I find a lot of defects, you know, and that's what I'm getting paid for, to give you the bad news. <laughs> of course, the airplane dealers don't like me very much because <laughs> I spoil a lot of deals. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they, they're not used to somebody like me who is a real nitpicker. <laughs> you know, they like to deal with like to deal with pilots. You know, they say, oh, man, I'm going to get a job flying this jet or flying this turboprop or flying this uh, Cirrus. But anyway, the pilots, you know, they're, they're giving the buyer all the good news. Oh man, this is quite. An, oh wow, what an airplane! <laughs> you know, but the fact is, they haven't been through the school of hot knocks like I have. You know, I have so many airplanes canned in my computer that it, the job gets easier every week because I look up the defects of the same make and model I did, and automatically I put that on my squawk list and just check it off to make sure when I get to the airplane that it's not broken on that airplane I'm doing. <laughs> and every. Every airplane, every airplane's different. You know, we have new generation airplanes now. We have the same old engines in most cases, <laughs> but we have different airframes and they're all made out of composite and everything. So uh, I'm like a doctor. I'm, I'm studying all the time.
0: Don Sebastian has been in aviation for over 60 years and a mechanic for 56 years. Today, he's 73 years old and still inspecting airplanes regularly. Don has worked for the AOPA on their yellow Cessnas and all of their sweepstakes aircraft, and he's also worked for some NASCAR drivers and has inspected hundreds of other aircrafts. Don was actually already featured in the logbook in our 2015 veteran special. He had a great story about how he got into aviation through the Army, so if you want to hear more from Don, then go check out that episode. You can also check out pictures of Don and more information related to these stories by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. Now even with being featured in two episodes of The Logbook, Don shared way more stories about pre-purchase inspections and his aircraft experience than I could ever fit in this episode. So if you can't get enough of these stories, you should check out our Patreon page and consider supporting. There you can have access to unedited interviews, sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, and even listen to finished episodes a week before they're released. This podcast isn't free to produce, and your support over on Patreon is what makes this show possible and ad-free. Please consider supporting us. Any amount is helpful. Even $1 per episode can help make the show better. You can check out our Patreon page by going to patreon.com slash the logbook podcast, or by clicking on the orange banner in our website. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook.